You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is April 20th, 2023. It's 7.42 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I thought that we would talk about attachment since in the previous weeks we've talked about uh, loss and separation. Attachment is a word that has a specific meaning in uh, Buddhist meditation practice, which is different than what John Bowlby meant by attachment. In in, um, Buddhist meditation theory, we attach to sensing experience uh, and that fixates it into conceptual reality. And the Buddha said uh, in the first of the Noble Truths that it's the clinging to conceptual reality or the clinging to sense experience, which is the origin of suffering. That makes sense not the experience itself, but the clinging to the meaning that we assign to experience. Um, so you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it when they meet. Uh, there's contact is the word that we use. And then a consciousness of that sensing experience arises. One of the difficulties about talking about this is that we use often the same word in English that, that has different meanings, but Consciousness does not mean that we're consciously aware of it. It just means that the activity of knowing a sensing experience is underway. It's then evaluated for uh, urgency, I like to say. Vedna is the word. It's often translated as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But I like urgency because the way that the body-mind is set up, if if the body-mind perceives something as urgent, it skips to the head of the line and gets immediate attention. If the body-mind doesn't think it's particularly important, it may not ever enter consciousness because the bandwidth is so narrow. And then if there's pleasant experience uh, and there's time to experience pleasant experience, it enters into conscious awareness, which is uh, actually the the self-experience that we know what's happening. Most of the time, that whole process of sensing something, evaluating it for urgency, uh, assigning meaning to it happens prior to it entering into the self-experience. So it already enters, formulated into a sensing experience. Then we have uh, not the Vedna aspect uh, of it, not the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect of it, or the needs urgent attention doesn't matter pleasant if there's time but the craving aversion and unconsciousness versus equanimity experience in uh, traditional buddhist thinking the in the pure sensing side of things almost everything is neutral the sensing experience is neutral so visual sensing of visual experience, sensing of auditory experience, sensing of taste, sensing of smell, these are all considered neutral. The body is capable of 
uh, unpleasant experience uh, that's not wanted. And there's also an aspect of this, which is pressure. So an intense pressure could be something that we have an adverse response to. So that if there's a very bright light, the pressure of the brightness of the light on the sensing activity is what's distressing, but the sensing activity of seeing itself is thought not to be. If you dim the light, the, the experience goes away. But in the body, pressure can also relate to pain or sensations in the body. So the body has the capacity for pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience, but most of the rest of it, the sensing experience is considered to be neutral. Uh, and then there's the pressure experience, which can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is very different from the wanting it, not wanting it, not interested in it, uh, or uh, equanimous. Can we just be engaged in the experience of the present moment as it's unfolding? We don't really notice the attaching of meaning to things because most of the time, the attachment of meaning precedes conscious awareness of it. Um, I uh, have a couple of meditations that you can do if you want to explore the process of that. One of them is a visual meditation using external sight space. So what you would do, I call it twilight meditation, is sit in a room uh, at dusk with no natural lighting, uh, with no artificial lighting on it, in a room that gets pretty dark. Uh, so there's not a lot of bleed of other sources of artificial light. And sit when the room is lit enough that you can easily see what's there. And then watch uh, as the light dims. What you'll notice first is that you go from a place where you can see color to a place where you can't see color. So. We have rods and cones in the eyes. The cones see color. The rods see contrast and edge. And the color cone uh, sensing array requires a lot more light than the edge and contrast rods do. And so what you'll notice as the light begins to dim is that at a certain threshold, there's not enough light to activate the cones. And so the image goes from in color to in uh, black and white, or uh, from a color image to an absence of color image. Then, then as the light continues to dim, when you're on the edge of there not being enough light to activate the rods, the visual field will begin to roll from a static, solid appearance to very different appearances about as the mind attempts to understand what visual experience is in front of it. So it'll be solid, then it'll roll, it'll be solid, then it'll roll, then it'll be solid, and it'll be it'll roll. And if you do this meditation and watch that happen, what you'll notice is that the mind creates these uh, impossible landscapes in front of you based on what's there, but they're completely believable in terms of their appearance. They feel they appear to be solid and uh, a consistent representation, except because you know what's in front of you, you recognize that it isn't actually there. And you have the insight into the nature of the mind being able to create the appearance of conceptual reality 
that is um, real in its appearance, but is actually created by the mind. And that opens up the understanding that the mind is creating the conceptual reality that you experience and that the accuracy of it will depend on the quality of the mind, uh, the quality of the sensing experience, and not actually what's there. Is that making sense? The second thing that you can do is use auditory experience. The mind will uh, identify what the sensing experience is, assign meaning to it, fixate it. So this is actually the attachment in the Buddhist sense. It attaches meaning to the undifferentiated sensing experience, and then the sensing experience becomes that. If you listen to the external soundscape and you identify a sound that you don't know what it is, and it lasts longer than a half a second, it will enter into consciousness as unfixated, and you'll be able to watch the mind attempt to fixate it. So it'll make it into something. And then if more evidence comes that that's not it, it will make it into something else. And you'll notice that you recognize these patterns of experience that come and go because body-mind can't identify the sound that it's hearing. Uh, I thought this was really fun, and I worked in the movie business and had a post-production company, and we had a sound library of 100,000 sounds, and we would just pull at random these CDs and put them in, and they would just play sound sounds that you would use to build a soundtrack with, and you'd have no idea uh, what they were, and you could really easily watch the mind attempting to solve the mystery of what that sound is but you can listen to the to the soundscape around you and see if you can identify a sound that's not fixated in it to anything is that making sense so it is possible to have a direct experience of the process of attachment another uh, possibility would be language um, I only speak English, so it's pretty easy for me to find a language that I don't understand what the meaning is. And then you simply listen to the language. Uh, the first thing you're trying to do, of course, is discern a word from just the sound of the language. But because you haven't uh, been conditioned to assign meaning to the sound, it's just pure sound. Uh, so you're listening to the sound. Uh, trying to parse it into the way you might hear an English sentence. If you, well, you, you have to understand English to be here because that's all you're ever going to get. <laughs> the occasional poly word thrown in for, you know, the radish and the green salad, but that's about it. Um, <clears throat> so what's, what's interesting. So we would go to Myanmar and sit these retreats and, and um, the the sound the sound quality of the language is so completely different than anything I'm uh, used to that I couldn't even identify the words uh, that uh, people were speaking. It just sounded like uh, this flow of sound. The other thing about uh, the Miramar language is that it's tonal, and there are four tones, and each tone assigns a different meaning to the same word. 
And so because they're polite and they don't say no, there's a particular way that they say yes with a tone that means no. There's a way that they say yes with a tone that means maybe. Um, and one of the big problems for Westerners is not to be able to hear the tone of no and just understand the word yes, which I thought was, uh, since it caused me so much difficulty, uh, pretty funny. And I would earnestly listen, you know, for the the tone, but since I'm not conditioned to register in, in the way that I experience things, and, and this is this insight into the nature of how we make uh, conceptual reality from ultimate reality. It really is our database, our set of meanings, the patterns that we're conditioned to recognize and uh, and the process of connecting the undifferentiated, raw, pure, ultimate uh, sense experience to what we mean by that, and then us fixating self and world into existence, attaching to a particular sensing experience, the meaning that that sensing experience holds. Now, everything, of course, comes and goes. Everything is impermanent. So the idea is to attach and then release, attach and then release. And that when we cling to things or when they grab us, uh, Dan Brown used to use the word grab. That always made more sense to me than clinging. Clinging always had the idea that we were actively doing it, whereas if it grabs us, uh, that's less uh, volitional. So in terms of craving, craving is uh, often wanting it to be different than it is or not wanting the way that it is to end. So you can crave the not ending of something or you can crave the thing that is to be different. The not wanting is the that aversive experience, not wanting what is. So the resistance to what is. And then unconsciousness is where there isn't much grab. You're just, it's not interesting. So the mind is off and entertaining itself in some other way. Christian. So would you say that like all of these reactions or the 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 clinging is like a conceptual layer that's a reaction to the sensory stuff because i i guess i never really heard it this way that i always thought of like suffering is all in the sort of conceptual realm and that if you kind of stay in the sensory realm then that's that's kind of how you get out of it but i guess yeah well if you don't fixate anything then you don't cling to anything because you haven't made it into anything the problem with not making it into anything is uh, on the Theravada side of practices, you don't remember experience really. So that if you don't fixate the sound of the, uh, uh, you just hear what I'm saying is vibration, then there's no meaning in the conveyance of that. If you don't fixate the vibrations that I'm making into words that you then assign, have meaning assigned to, then it's just vibration. There may be some other aspects. Maybe you fixate the vis visual field and you can read body language but or facial expressions. But if you don't fixate the words, then you don't hear anything that has meaning to it. 
Uh, if you don't fixate the visual field, then you can't recognize the facial expressions or the body language. So you can stay there uh, if you want to, but that would be volitional. And then that would mean that if you needed to manifest a brilliant sense of self at the drop of a hat, you could do that. But the suffering would come where you would be stuck on the the, the non-fixating side and not be able to fixate something when you wanted to. And then the suffering that would arise from that would arise from being stuck. The metaphor that Shinzen used to use was a walled garden where the inside was completely manicured and the outside was a completely wild. The wild side being undifferentiated, unfixated, and the, the manicured garden being the uh, fixated uh, conceptual reality side and that there's a gate in the wall that you move through. If you can effortlessly move back and forth between not fixating and fixating, so there's no clinging, there's no grab, there's no suffering in that, and you still operate in terms of meaning between human beings. But you can get stuck on either side of the gate, and the, the suffering ensues. If you get stuck in the sense of self, it's this pressure cooker of pain, and if you get stuck on the no-self side, you can't formulate uh, any understanding of what's really happening so that you can function in relationship to anything. Is that making sense? So where's the, where does the decision-making apparatus exist for whether to be on one side of the gate or the other? So here we have the, the insight into the nature of self not actually being in charge of anything and all of that process is being unconscious and happening prior to the self experience that has an understanding of what's happening that we can identify as the author, the doer, the controller. Really, the, the um, another metaphor I like is that the self is the audience for what you do. And from the self-position, you watch what you do. What you do is the authentic experience of you, and the self-experience is the audience watching it. The audience doesn't write the play. It doesn't perform the play. It doesn't do any of that stuff. It just perceives it. Uh, and it has the feature of veto, that if you recognize you're doing something that isn't skillful, you can stop yourself from doing it from the self-observation of what it is that you're doing. But most of the time, the authorship and the intention of all of that has preceded that happening. But as Dan used to say, the Danness or the Georgeness or the Christianness is happening, and Christian is watching it, or George is watching the Georgeness happen. But it's not the Georgeness, it is not the creator of the Georgeness. Trippy dude. <laughs> so so when we're when what are we cultivating in our practice, right? Like we're we're cultivating some kind of space around being able to make a choice, right? And so are we working at just the subconscious level that our awareness is making better choices or are we really building up that volitional that the self makes the choice you know of, of which side to go on 
Well, I think to to make these deep changes uh, in our behaviors and our interactions with the world, we need to do it in the unconscious system of ourselves, not in the self-experience. So if you do these systematic approaches, you respond differently. Uh, whereas if you have to remember to respond differently, it's already too late in most cases to respond differently. You can correct, but it's already too late to respond. That's one of the reasons why the ideal parent figure protocol is so effective is it reworks the database so that when you form self and world, you form it in a, a way that's different than you would have before based on the perceptual database. So you're just responding differently than you did, even though the experience of how you formulate the responses that you make is uh, the same. The self-experience uh, convinces itself that it's the same you that's experienced all of the previous self-experiences, even though the self-experience arises based on the present moment conditions and one moment of self versus another moment of the self are not necessarily the same. Have you ever shown up with great confidence and belief in your ability? Have you ever showed up believing that you can't do anything right and that you're a total uh, mess? And those self-experiences are quite different. There's nothing intrinsic about the way that that arises. It's always dependent on the conditions of the present moment. So you don't rely on the self-experience to generate all of this stuff. You rely on training the uh, unconscious process of body-mind so that it just responds differently. Then you don't have to worry about monitoring so vigorously because your responses are automatically different. So in some sense, the moments of mindlessness that uh, arise ordinarily aren't so uh, catastrophic because the body-mind is already acting differently than it would otherwise. Is that making sense? So uh, where I think you notice that you make progress is when you're just acting differently than you did before without any kind of conscious thought processes in creating that different response. Most of the time, uh, the need to make uh, to, to create a response to the conditions of the present moment happens so fast there isn't time for the reflection that the self-experience provides. You're already in the process of taking the action by the time you're aware that you're taking an action. You want to have that fail-safe system where you can evaluate whether it's a boneheaded move and stop yourself from completing it, but that doesn't prevent you from formulating the boneheaded move in the first place. That's the deep work of changing the perceptual database so that you don't formulate self and world in the same way. So that's the attachment side and the way that we use attachment. We attach meaning to the sensing experience based on the perceptual database is the Buddhist side of this. Non-attachment is where you don't attach, you don't fixate. And clinging is where you let these formulations of self and world come and go without uh, clinging or grabbing onto them and wishing to hold them or without resisting them, wishing that they weren't the way that they are or spacing out because they're not interesting and you don't want to pay attention. 
On the attachment side of things, uh, what we're talking about is the sense of safety in connection to someone else. We are uh, herd animals, or um, we often say that we're herd animals. We're really not herd animals. We're pack animals. We're the apex predator on the earth. We're not prey. Right? I know that uh, there is a we like to think of ourselves as more benign than the apex predator. <laughs> uh, but if you watch the progression of man through the, the planet, what follows in our wake is mass extinction. And this has been the case since the beginning of our migrations. We just slaughter everything as we move through uh, with this idea that we can take whatever we want and the world will replenish itself, that we don't actually cause uh, the harm that we cause. Um, but we're pack animals and, and we're meant to live in complex social groups. That's the, the way that the body is constructed. We have these bundles of neurons that only uh, species that live in complex social groups have and uh, so our capacity to form and understand nuanced, complex relationships is built into the biology of this spacesuit that we each inhabit as we move through the world. Uh, and so understanding this and understanding that because our biology is uh, uh, based on this, that if we don't have these relationships, the body-mind doesn't work as well as it does if you do have these relationships. Really, the thing that happens to us is uh, we want to be in these tight social groups uh, so that we feel supported and that we can then go out and explore. So in the in attachment theory, there's these three basic uh, domains that we talk about. The attachment experience, the exploration experience, and the, the collaborative relationship experience. And we need to really have all three of these functioning well. I think that this melds very well with the uh, the Buddhist understanding of how we create experience, because really what we're uh, talking about here is seeing things the way that they are and understanding the nature of the, the human container that we're in and what the human container we're in needs in order to function well in the world. Life is difficult, even for, even at the level of privilege that uh, most of us have, life is difficult. Uh, and when you can uh, take that in and really uh, be with it, and that's the assumption, it, it reduces a lot of suffering. Don't expect it to go smoothly. You're not uh, um, distressed by that. You enjoy it when it goes smoothly because it's unusual and and it and it has a, a, a zing to it. Um, whereas if your expectation was it should always be that, you're in a constant state of uh, disappointment. And even when it goes moderately well, you're in a state of disappointment rather than enjoying that it's going moderately well. 
given how difficult everything is. Is that making sense? It is, and particularly in the way that we live, which is, um, you know, when we talk about the biology of the human body, when we say a uh, complex social group, we really mean 150 people. Uh, you know, I live in Los Angeles. There's 40 million people in this uh, area. Right? It's quite, quite a bit different. And when we say you're attached, what that means is that your expectation is, is if you need help, you can ask somebody for help. So consider the world that you live in. How many people do you feel that for whatever reason, uh, if you needed help, you could just call them up and then they would help you? And, and that's the kind of uh, close social group that we want to be a part of. And the degree of the robustness of that creates a, a sense of ease. And the more restricted that is, the more difficult it is. Do you have the sense that there's a few people, that's really all you need, a few people that you could call on and that they would help you? Or do you have a sense that you're on your own? This is very important in relationship to exploration. If you feel that you have this, this social safety net of people who will help you, you're willing to take bigger risks in your exploration. And uh, if you succeed at that, the richness of the meaning that you get uh, enlivens the whole experience of, of your life now. And if you can't take those risks and you truncate your exploration, uh, you can get to a point where you're not taking enough risks that uh, the experience of being alive is the source of despair rather than source of meaning. And so we need that. The, the understanding of collaborative relationship systems and the, the collaboration system means that you take care of people in a way that they need to be taken care of so that they're well taken care of. And then they take care of you uh, in a way that you need to be taken care of so that you're well taken care of, so that when you need help, you have somebody who's in good shape to help you. When they need help, they have somebody who's in good shape to help them. Whereas if you don't take good care of the people that are around you and you need them to help you, they not they may not be in good shape and not may not be able to help. But that that's the understanding of that collaboration. So you attach to people. You commit to them. Then uh, what we also need, uh, and this, this is from the very early, we need to be able to express ourselves authentically, and we need that expression to have an effect on the people that we express it to, so that we feel a sense of value, a sense of importance in the relationship to them. What does it feel like when you express yourself and it has an effect on the people around you versus when you express yourself and it has no effect? It's like, like you didn't make the expression. One is a process of feeling seen and valued and one, of the, one is the process of having no value. We really want to feel that we're cherished people that are important that have an effect on uh, the group that we're in. 
Uh, and so that's part of this collaborative system. The attachment mechanism is linked to the exploration system in the sense that when the attachment system goes off, the exploration system, when the, so sorry, the, I was about to use the same word for two, both sides. When the attachment system turns on, the exploration system turns off. When the attachment system turns off, the exploration system turns on. If you don't have people that can emotionally regulate you uh, reasonably well, the attachment system goes off and turns on and stays on, and the exploration system stays off. And then that begins to limit your capacity to find meaning in this very difficult uh, life that we have. Whereas if you have people that can reasonably regulate you so that your attachment system shuts off effectively, that uh, means that you're spending more time in the exploration side of things, finding meaning. So what you wanna do is surround yourself by people that are effective and emotionally regulating you so that you can easily um, deactivate the attachment side and activate the exploration side. The collaborative relationship system stays in, uh, active uh, and is not shut off by the activation of the attachment system or the activation of the exploration system. Now, we learn or don't learn these skills in childhood based on our experience with our caregivers. We're all starting out as auto-regulators. We all come into the world as these little babies, these little um, bundles of joy. And um, if somebody comes good enough, we reorient over time to uh, allowing them to regulate us. So we become externally oriented in terms of emotional regulation. And if they're reliable enough, we begin to enter into a collaborative experience of expressing ourselves authentically, presenting ourselves and our needs, and then receiving the care that uh, we're asking for. So we express ourselves, it affects the caregiver, and then they respond with the thing that we need to feel taken care of. That's the, the loop of uh, collaboration. And then we gradually take in the, the strategies that our uh, caregivers use to regulate us, and we learn to do them for ourselves so that we can then go off in our solo exploration. But then we understand that if we get so dysregulated that we can't regulate ourselves, which is an ordinary uh, occurrence, we can come rushing back uh, and the caregiver will then regulate us in this collaborative exchange. So that self-mastery includes both going out into the world and self-regulating and also recognizing when you can't regulate and come rushing back and being regulated by the people that you have surrounded yourself. That's self-mastery. Self-mastery is not where you learn to regulate yourself so that you never needed to depend on anyone ever again. That's actually auto-regulating where we we started. Is that making sense? So in attachment, we 
attached to people and when we're securely attached, we are not afraid to express ourselves authentically. When we're insecurely attached, we think that if we express ourselves authentically, we could risk being abandoned. That's why we call it insecurely attached. Insecure attachment. You're connected to somebody and, and you don't think that the relationship can fail based on small things. You rely on them because they're, they've demonstrated that they're reliable. They rely on you because you've demonstrated that you're reliable. That making sense. So let's practice something. Uh, distinction, um, George, uh, my dogs uh, went off like and start kind of startled me. Uh, um, can you hear me okay? Oh, go ahead. Uh, and and uh, so I was I was just wondering if that would count as um, uh, well, I noticed my heart was, you know, uh, going more rapidly. Um, and there was also then maybe a, another component to it. Maybe it was emotional. So that would be mostly, I guess, feel out. So it's a question of zooming in. So sometimes when you're when more than one activity is happening and this, this space is big enough that you're including more than one, you'd have to note more than one activation. Or the other choice is to zoom in on just one of the sensations. So the startled sense of being startled, and then it has a physical manifestation. So if my heart is feeling more rapid, that's a feel out, right? Yeah. Carol sounds like she's in a stadium. Now I do. <laughs> I don't know why that's doing that. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm getting feedback. I think it might be the settings George experimented with. Um, oh, I don't hear it. Oh, fabulous. Back to normal. Uh, <laughs> testing. Okay. The feedback went away. <laughs> yeah. That's the, uh, the microphone on the camera, whereas I have this other microphone. If I use the good mic, it, it filters out the bell. And if I use the, the crappy mic, it catches the bell. So. Um, so thank you all for coming. Um, let's see what's happening. We have a meditation and addiction class uh, that's the first three Saturdays of May, which isn't too far away. Um, we're going to go over the four modules that we talk about, craving and, aver uh, um, craving and urging, stress, anger, and depression, uh, difficult, um, persistent negative emotions is the first three. And then the fourth one is a difficult interpersonal relationships, which is the constellation for addiction. Um, then uh, 
I'm doing a retreat in Utrecht in June if you want to travel across the ocean and come to a retreat. So way over there. Um, that's the 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th of June. Going to do in July uh, a um, the first time we've done it, how to give the adult attachment interview, which might be interesting, July 8th. Um, in June uh, 24th and 25th, I'm teaching a a weekend retreat in Oakland called I Love You, Keep Going, which is about how to, really what it's about is um, how to make uh, polyamorous relationships work in a secure way. So that's there if you're interested in that. Um, what else? Then in the fall, we'll have our, our uh, level ones and level twos uh, beginning again. So most of that's up on the calendar. Uh, the Thailand trip did not happen, so it's off the calendar. I'm trying to reconstitute it, but it's a, it's too late to reconstitute it for this year. So, um, thank you for coming. Um, I uh, offer the teaching freely, but I do hope that uh, if you can, you'll make a donation. There's a link on the website for doing that. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Really appreciate your practice. I hope to see you soon again on the path. Uh, it's warming up in LA, so enjoy that. <laughs> it's even sunny. So amazing. <laughs> Alrighty. See you later.